Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There's kind of two ways I feel like you can sort of attack a setup. One is you can make fun of something that is already within the setup, and that's kind of more of an internal version of a punchline. And then there's something where you can take that idea and bring it to an, a separate place that is a surprise location. <laughs> that sounds like I'm kidnapping <laughs> the setup. <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. And whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? That was the delightful Karen Chi. She, another Karen, to be clear. Um, she is a comedian who's done everything from stand-up to writing for The New Yorker and The Golden Globes. And she's currently a staff writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. So in the interview, Karen mentions being in a different age bracket from most of her co-workers at Late Night. How old is she? If I'm not mistaken, she's currently 26, so she is very young, especially since she started a couple years ago or something, I believe. Wow. That's a very early start in late night comedy writing. She's a prodigy. She's great. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to hear the interview. But first, I know that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. Mm-hmm. What will they hear? We talk a little bit about one of the quirks of working at Late Night with Seth Meyers, which is that the writers actually go home before the show tapes. Obviously, we get into what it's like working on a late night show on the full episode. But if you're interested in getting a better peek behind the late night curtain, I highly recommend the segment. Well, it sounds fascinating. And fortunately, it's incredibly easy to subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our... Sorry. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. It's just $1 for the first month. For more information, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Karen's conversation with Karen Chi. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. 
Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Karen Chi, thank you so much for coming on Working. It is a delight to be able to talk to you today. Yay, it's so nice to talk to you too, Karen Han. So I'm going to get straight into it. If I'm remembering correctly, comedy was not your first passion. So I'm curious if you can tell us what you initially thought you wanted to do with your life and how and when comedy became the thing for you. I guess my first passion was school, <laughs> um, but it's true. I like was very, I really loved school. I loved my teachers and I mm-hmm. remember being like, oh, I fully understand. Like the the job of being a student made so much sense to me. Like I was yeah. really excited to learn. I was really excited to do my homework. Um, and I think that went all the way up through maybe the beginning of high school and then once I got to high school I was like less enamored by my school and the teachers and that is also coincidentally when I started thinking of like oh maybe I want to be a comedy writer Um, so I think when I became a little older I realized oh, I really like writing and I really like history and politics and stuff um and so I was thinking about maybe like speech writing or something in politics Mm -hmm. and then yeah floated to comedy writing And then when I got to college, that really got cemented. Yeah. So you definitely knew that you wanted to do something kind of more forward-facing, I guess. Yes. Although I think I wanted to do something forward-facing on behalf of another person. Um, Oh, yeah? So, like, I never wanted to be the politician, if that makes sense. I wanted to be, like, someone who wrote for the politician or did something for them that was helpful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And so what were your kind of like first steps into comedy? Because I feel like we all have very broad ideas of what quote unquote comedians do, but the actual work part of it, I think, is pretty mysterious to most people. I started off essentially when I was in eighth grade, my friend Morgan showed me The Office and I hadn't (laughs) seen comedy before because my parents didn't let me watch TV like on the weekdays. I have like very strict parents who were like, TV is bad for you and then explained it so well that I genuinely avoided watching television. What what was their explanation to you? Their explanation, I mean, I still buy it and I think it's genius, which is (laughs) they were like, if you watch television, increasingly all the shows are the edits are getting so quick, like, mm-hmm. um, that the scenes are changing so quick and that there's they're just increasing the amount of stimulation when you're watching the show that your attention span is growing shorter. And my mom, who, like, worked with young children in therapy for a little bit and stuff, like, was, like, you know, very honestly, when you're a child, your attention span should be, like, you should be training it to be the longest possible mm. um, because your brain is still developing. And I was immediately just like, Mom, that makes so much sense. I remember I watched an episode of Jeopardy and I was, like, tallying how many edits there were and there were so many more than I had expected and it was such a good way of explaining to me why tv was bad for a young kid's brain to consume (laughs) all the time Uh and then so when I was in eighth grade and my friend uh like on youtube my friend Morgan was like hey like look at these clips of the office and I was just like mind blown because I didn't know that kind of a thing existed Mm -hmm. and that all those people were getting together to be funny on purpose was really crazy to me and I think that's when I sort of started getting really interested in comedy and then in high school 
I did like improv and stuff, which is so yeah. embarrassing to say now. Everyone <laughs> did. You ever... did. It's either improv or acapella, and you did uh, one of them. Yeah. Wait, which one did you do? I did acapella. Okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna lie. Acapella is still really cool to me. <laughs> I think it's... you can say that as someone who didn't do it, but as someone who <laughs> was like very in it. Now I'm like, what was I doing? <laughs> like, why did I take it so seriously? Anyway. Um, kind of on the back of that, I'm curious, like, what do you, if there's, like, a single experience that you think that you consider, like, your first really, like, professional comedy job? I remember when I was, so when I was in college, I started, like, contributing to The New Yorker. Um, mm-hmm. And I, that only happened just because I didn't realize you had to be an adult to write for The New Yorker. <laughs> um, when I was submitting it, they were, there were there weren't any things about like I think it was something like resume optional or something like that, uh-huh. and so I was like whatever, and I sent it in, and then because of that, there was somebody who was putting up a show that was like a reading show, the where you read your comedy pieces, and they were mm-hmm. putting together a lineup, and I guess they had seen my name on the New Yorker stuff and didn't know I was in college and asked if I wanted to do it, and then at that point I was like oh my gosh they don't know I'm a student. I feel like I've somehow tricked the system. <laughs> and I remember on the weekend, I think it was like during maybe my fall semester of my senior year or something like that, um, taking like a bus to New York and then wow. doing that show and reading my thing. And then there were other people in the lineup, one of whom is like one of my coworkers now at late night. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but that was my first time like sort of brushing shoulders with actual comedy yeah. writers. Yeah, and feeling like, oh, I also have something to contribute to this. And they are also assuming that I'm a comedy writer. And mm-hmm. I think I got paid for it. It was probably something like $10. Like, I definitely <laughs> paid way more to get there and, like, stay on my friend's couch. Yeah, you but got I was paid so an exposure. <laughs> yeah. I got paid. Yeah, but I was really excited just to be like, oh, my gosh, I got money for this. So That's amazing. That, yeah, that was very that was very cool. That sticks out in my mind. <laughs> Um, and so, as you mentioned, you're currently a late night writer. What was the path that got you to that job? Yeah, so I graduated from college and then sort of floated around for a little bit. And I like lived in Vermont for a month and things like that. And then I, I'm not originally from Vermont. That's why I mentioned it. I'm from <laughs> California, so Vermont was like a whole new world. It really yeah. felt like what I imagined Canada is supposed to be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, I did that. And then when I moved to New York, I spent a full year kind of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing mm-hmm. what stuck. So I, that was when I first started doing stand-up um, and a lot of writing for internet humor sites, um, trying to do shows and kind of meeting other people who did comedy. Yeah. yeah, and I did that for a full year, and that was when I was trying to write packets and stuff for shows. Right. So, like, so late-night shows in general have, like, this application process, essentially, mm-hmm. where you get sent a packet, and what that means is there are things you have to do to submit and send in for the head writer or the people at that show to read and then see if you're good enough um, to be considered. Yeah. And so I did that for a bunch of shows, and I got rejected from a lot of them, which I think is normal, but at the time, I was like, oh my god, I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I found out after I joined um, that... I think this is someone at Colbert who told me she had written like 32 packets before she mm, got staff. Wow. So uh, compared to that, I was like not nearly there, but it really, I was probably going to get pretty close, I assume. And so I did that. And then I got a job writing for the Golden Globes. And so... Was the Globes job also um, from a packet or... No, that one was really okay. random. That one, I think normally what happens is the Golden Globes host 
before they fell into flames. Um, the <laughs> yeah, rip in gl- peace. Yeah, <laughs> Rippo Dippo. The host used to be like a late night person, and then they would just bring their writing staff. Gotcha, yeah. And so that year, the host was, it was Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh. And so they, you know, are actors and don't have like a writing staff in place. And so mm-hmm. they sort of asked around, I think. Um, and then... I was so excited by the idea of getting to write for Sandra O oh, yeah. that I had mentioned it and one of my someone I knew from the internet who had read my stuff but I'd never met her in person. Wow. Was like actually I I know Andy and I'm going to pass your stuff along and she did and it was so nice and they were like yeah well we would love to reach out and hire That's you great. for this. Yeah, and so that was my first like staffing job. Mhm. So I did that and then when I was there I met a bunch of the late night writers. So it was all the women writers, I think, had gone out to write for Late Night together. And they were also really, like, everybody in that room was nice, but the three yeah. of them went out of their way to be really nice and welcoming. Oh, that's amazing. I think, yeah. Yeah, they could tell I was really scared. Um, yeah, so I did that. And then when I came back to New York, I mentioned to them, like, oh, I might get staffed at this other show. Like, I mm-hmm. had a packet go well, and I'm excited about it. And they were, like, really nice and had me come in. They kind of mentioned me, I think, to Late Night. And was like, before she gets staffed there, let's see if she's a fit here. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, yeah, I went in and I met with them and I really liked them. So mm-hmm. The way that these shows are structured is like there is a writer's room that works together to put the show together. Can you talk a little bit about how the writer's room works for a show like Late Night? So pre-pandemic, we were, when one, I think one of the perks of this job compared to other late night rooms is that we're all in the same room. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it always sounds a little bit weird because we don't have our own offices is essentially what it means. We're all in this giant L-shaped room. But (laughs) because of that, and thankfully because everyone is very nice, um, Mm -hmm. it ends up just becoming like a summer camp. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we hang out all day long. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, the (laughs) writing staff is split into two. There's a monologue writing team and a sketch writing team. And you can do both. So periodically, okay. I'll write sketches and stuff. And you can submit whenever, but there's one that you focus on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on the monologue team. So we just essentially crank out a ton of jokes every morning. Um, pre-pandemic, it was something like three full pages of jokes by 1 p.m. Wow. every day, I think. Yeah, and in the beginning, that was by something yourself where I was like, or as a by monologue By yourself. Group. <gasps> wow. Yeah, so each person. Yeah, so it was something like... Everyone, I can't remember the actual number, but maybe in each given day, everyone writes like 80 jokes. And then if you're lucky, like two will make it on the show. And so um, that was really good training in terms of getting a lot of stuff out of my brain and not judging myself because oftentimes I'll have to write like 10 to get to one good one. And there'll be days where I write, you know, all 80 jokes and not get any on the show. And Mm -hmm. it's really nice just to be like, okay, well, I can just do it tomorrow. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we do that. In the morning, the writer's assistants sort of comb through the news and pull out headlines for us. And that's how we get a lot of the material. And then usually based on their sort of shortened encapsulation of the news, you you can go and research more. Mm-hmm. And there are also two TVs in the room that are usually on mute but are on some sort of news channel so that if something big is happening, you can all watch it together. Yeah. And that's actually kind of really fun. It does feel like mm-hmm. you... And your friends are watching some show together and, you know, making fun of whatever's happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you go in for a uh, reads-through with Seth. So he goes and speed reads through a bunch of jokes that the head writer picked out from mm-hmm. your, you know, 80. 
and he speed reads through them because if it's like monotone and really fast and it still feels funny, then you're like, oh, this is actually a good joke. Uh-huh, yeah. And not just the delivery. Um, right. And so we do that and then we go back and we write more and then we do the dress rehearsal and that's with an audience that some pages, I think, have truly picked up <laughs> outside of 30 Rock. <laughs> um, and it's tough because a lot of those people are often tourists from other countries. Oh, and so they'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah, their knowledge of American politics is often very slim or they'll laugh at something random like a weird pronunciation <laughs> or something like that. Um, They're just happy to be seeing Seth Meyers. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I also wonder, do they know who he is? Like, <laughs> I, I can't imagine late night shows being that popular in non-English speaking countries, you know? Yeah. They're yeah, it's like, I don't know any weird. news anchors in any other country, let alone like <laughs> yeah. comedian equivalents. Truly, exactly. Um, so I wonder if they're just like, look at this silly man having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Um but, yes, yeah, so we do a dress rehearsal, and then afterwards we usually write a few more jokes, but not really. I will say the workload slows down around 3 p.m., and so from 3 to 6 is when we all can be working, but we're mostly, like, hanging out unless we're on the show that night. Um, but then I guess after that is the actual taping of the show, right? So your days yes. are pretty long in the end. No, okay, so this is a secret, which is our show. No, None of the writers stay for the tape. <laughs> And it's like, good uh, for you. Yeah, we all were like, we see what the final script is, and everyone's like, oh, here's the stuff I got on or didn't get on. And then everyone's out the door. And speaking of like sticking around to be on the show, you have a recurring bit on the show as well called What Does Karen Know? Um, mm. I'm curious about the origins of that. Um, and if you, can, if you can also quickly explain that for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a segment that we did for a while. It was um, basically Seth would show me something that was very popular before I was born and and then I will show him something very popular when after I was born (laughs) that's like relevant to people like our age Karen um that he might not know about and then we sort of (laughs) guess what it is and yeah so that we came up with that I didn't come up with that another writer named Matt Goldich did Mm -hmm. and it happened very organically because when I started in the room I think I was 23 and the next youngest writer was like 28. Mm-hmm. I think because of that, I would mention things and genuinely assume that they were references everybody would get and people would not know what I was talking about. And the main one I remember is Neopets. Um, <gasps> that nobody, nobody got it? Nobody got it. What? And I, I really felt like, is everyone making fun of me? Like, <laughs> I didn't understand how that was possible. The two big things were... You're like Mandela was, affecting you. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> It was Neopets, and then it was the chickenpox vaccine, where I was like, I got a chickenpox vaccine, and everyone was like, that doesn't exist. What? You have to get the chickenpox. And I was like, no, I've never had it because I had the vaccine. And then someone who is a mom um, was like, no, 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 I have a young son, and he is he got the chickenpox okay, vaccine. Yeah. Karen is just a child. <laughs> um, and so that I think because of those two things, Matt Goldich... I uh, came up with this idea where he was like, what if we show yeah. random things? Okay, do you know what these little guys are? Uh, are they like um, Pikachus? No. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Well, they, uh, uh, they are, um, uh, are they like, uh, like Baby Lion King, like the Muppet Babies, but 
Is that like like Baby Simba or something? So these are actually, honestly, very good guesses in that they are animated. Okay, so this is something called Neopets. Neopets? Does that ring a bell? Okay. It was very fun, and so I was Neopets shocked like that it worked on air, because I thought it was only fun for us in the room. Um, mm-hmm. But what do I know? Yeah. As someone who's watched the bit, it is very good. Um, oh, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> we'll be back with more of Karen Han's conversation with Karen Chi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Karen's conversation with Karen Chi. You've written for several different, I guess, comedic mediums now. Like you've written for Late Night, you've written your own stand-up material, you've written for The New Yorker, like literally written material. Um, I'm I'm curious, like, how do you, do you have to change, like, your mindset when you're working on different kinds of things? I think I don't change my mindset, but then I change the delivery of it, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And so, because I think I still have the same sense of humor across all of those things, but Mm -hmm. I would almost just like package it differently. Um, It's kind of like if I were trying to explain a situation to my mom versus my friend, I would explain it differently to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah, there are often things where I'm like, oh, I think this is really funny. My friend Ali Horde on Late Night, she and I wrote a thing that was about Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop because I think the logo mm-hmm. for Goop came out and it was very clearly a vagina. And we were like, this is hilarious. And so yeah. we wrote a thing for it. Um, and Seth tried it out and it was just like awkward and weird. And we were like, oh, no, like we've made you look like a creep. And so um, that did not make it past rehearsal. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's sort of a thing where I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I can... It's still the same sense of humor, but I have to make sure it works for him or me or The New Yorker or yeah. you know, whoever it is I'm doing jokes for. My next question is kind of macro and po- possibly too broad, but what, in your opinion, makes a good joke? I think there's kind of like an inexplicable thing of delight. That's mm-hmm. like my personal favorite kind of joke is when something I hear it and I go, oh, dang, <laughs> that makes me really happy kind of. Um, that's the best. There's a comedian I really like called Bob Mortimer. Um, oh my God, who, he's so good. Oh my God, he's the greatest. I think he's exactly, in my mind, the like, especially him on shows like What I Lie to You or Mortimer and White House, Gone yeah. Fishing and stuff. I used to have 17 sugars in a cup of oh. coffee or tea. 17? 17. 17, yeah. 17 in a mug? Yes. If I had 18, it's too sweet for me. So. <laughs> that's... The exact humor, I'm like, oh, I think I want to do that. I want to be that good. Um, 
where he's never punching down. He's never mean to anybody. It's truly, it's sweet, but without being, like, saccharine or... um, I really like that. And then I also, I guess I, you know, what's underlying that is actually probably surprise. So I'm going to go actually with surprise because I really like that kind of delight. But I also really like very dry humor. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say Bob Mortimer is very, very dry. And I am not very dry. I think I'm too excited to be dry. And so anytime someone is very good at dry humor, I'm like, where did this come from? (laughs) What a delight. (laughs) Yeah. This is maybe putting a little bit of pressure on you, but that's, you've described like what you find good jokes, what you think are good jokes from other people, but how do you parse that for your own work? Like when you write a joke that you think is really good, do you feel that same sense of delight where it's like, oh yes, like that's it? Yeah, I think there's also, there's a moment where when I'm writing something, it'll kind of surprise me when I think of it. Mm-hmm. And that's when I'm like, oh, this is worth putting in. Like, mm-hmm. it surprises me in a good way. It works. And I I think it's funny. And then other times I'll be writing. Just because you know how, like, before I had this as my job, it was just, like, a really exciting hobby. And so yeah. there would be times <laughs> when I was trying to write and it wouldn't come out. And I'd be like, that's fine. I don't need to work on this more um but because it's my job it's like you gotta clock in and write jokes and clock out yeah so even on the days where I come in feeling bad I'm like man I have to be funny today and so I think there is kind of an autopilot that can still get me to things that sound like jokes yeah that aren't as funny or as good but are still like oh they set up punchline it you know it mm-hmm. works and so when the mechanism feels too clear even to me as the writer I'm like I don't want to do this and then mm-hmm. When it comes to me as a surprise because I've been thinking about it for so much, that's usually the best kind of best kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned like kind of being able to crank out the jokes for a monologue, even if you don't feel like you're in tip top shape for joke writing that day. Um, I'm curious, like, how much work did it take to get up to that point? Like, how at what point do you sort of figure out, okay, this is how this joke, this kind of joke is structured. I just need to hit these beats, and that makes it like a complete package. That's. Something that I think took me a long time, and it was mostly just through the sheer number of jokes I had to write um, for late night that I got kind of used to the grooves of a joke. And Mm -hmm. so if somebody has a setup, I can usually sort of like look at it for a little while and be like, okay, well, in the punchline, if I change this sort of part of that concept, it could be funny. It could be a surprise to whoever's listening. I could. There's kind of two ways I feel like you can sort of attack a a setup. Um, Mm-hmm. where one is you can make fun of something that is already within the setup, um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of more of an internal version of a punchline. And then there's something where you can take that idea and bring it to an, a separate place that is a surprise location. <laughs> that sounds like I'm kidnapping <laughs> the setup. Um, but, yeah, and that's kind of like an external way to attack it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, on days where I sort of am on autopilot, I I kind of think about it that way, where I'm sort of more like, okay, let's look at this as though I'm building like a model train or something. Yeah. Like, what does this need? Let me just put in those parts. Um, and then hopefully, you know, somebody else will read it and be like, oh, this is good. Or like, oh, I can edit this <laughs> so that it can become good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In those instances that you were talking about where instead of kind of staying within its internal logic, a joke goes to a second place, like how can you tell like if something is or isn't too extreme? Like how can you make sure that it's going to work when it jumps over to that second or third location? Usually I kind of just go with my gut check on it, I think. And so 
there are times where I'm like, this joke makes perfect sense to me. Um, <laughs> and whoever I show it to will be like, I don't understand how you got there. <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of tricky because I, when to get to that sort of surprising part, often it's mostly that you keep brainstorming punchlines and it's not the first couple because those are the very obvious step one, step two. Mm -hmm. And then the more you think about it, it'll go to like an A to a B to a C location. And so, yeah, yeah, but then sometimes you go too far and that's when I sort of (laughs) send the joke to another writer in the room being like, does this make sense? Or like, sometimes I'll send something being like, is this appropriate for our Mm -hmm. show? And then they'll be like, (laughs) yes, it's appropriate. Like, because I think I have a very... I think my max of humor is like PG-13 and sometimes I'll say a PG-13 joke and then I'll be like, oh no, this is rated R. And they'll be like, no, Karen, we're all adults. You can say whatever you want. You mentioned that you've basically monetized your hobby, which I think is a a problem that a lot of people around our age have. Yeah, Um, yeah. Can you kind of like, do you or do you want to kind of turn the like comedy part of your brain off like when you're not working on the show or like, how do you what do you now do in order to kind of fill that part of yourself that was previously a hobby does that make sense this is a really good question because I really struggled with that and so in the beginning before the pandemic started it took me a while to figure out what to do which is just to have other hobbies um because I before I was like I like to do stand-up and I like to do improv and I like to write and those felt like three different things and then Pretty quickly, I was like, oh, this is all comedy and this is all for my career. And that felt really debilitating somehow. Um, yeah. And creatively, I felt so much pressure in a way where I was like, I was, I just want to be able to do this and have fun. Um, and I do genuinely enjoy my job, but, you know, job it's still a job. And so when I started at Late Night I afterwards, I started like French classes and oh, I wow. started boxing. Yeah. And I really liked that. And then the pandemic started and it felt like this work-life balance that I'd kind of cobbled together really just everything disappeared and so um this past year I've been having so much fun I've just been like anytime there's something new I'm like I'm just gonna try it and even if it only lasts for a month I'm gonna who cares is um I started fishing I really like fishing (gasps) oh my gosh that's so cool it's really nice yeah I bought like um I've been living in Seoul for the past couple years and so I just bought like a rod and a bunch of bait and stuff like that and then I went out to the river and I fished oh my gosh yeah it was there's a bunch of like people who sit by the river this is Hengang and like the Han River and um it was yeah those people are very good and I really had like the beginner's (laughs) beginner's equipment I didn't catch anything but I had a great time And you mentioned that you've been in Seoul for the last couple of years, and that's actually one of the big things I wanted to ask you about, of how has it been to work remotely, especially with such a big time difference? Yeah, I initially came here because my grandma got very sick, and this was in the summer of 2020, which was like pre-vaccine, in the middle of the first wave when things were really crazy, and so flying to Korea already felt really scary. Yeah. And yeah, so I flew to Korea, I told my boss is just being like, hey, this is happening in my family. I would like to go. We're all working remotely. So, you know. Yeah. And they were really nice. And they were like, oh, yeah, definitely go. You can focus on family time and you don't have to work. And so I did that. And then my grandma was sick for a very long time. And she's actually much better now, which is That's great. Really nice... That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But I think for a while, the time difference lined up nicely where my grandma needed somebody to be there at nighttime to make sure she was sleeping okay. And mm-hmm. so... 
my mom and aunt, I'd be like, you guys should sleep at night because I have to be up anyway. So I'll just yeah. write jokes next to her bed. And then I didn't realize the like insane like mind fuck that that would be where yeah. I'm like, my grandma is extremely ill. So I'm here to make sure she's staying alive. And then I'm writing jokes about like fucking Trump. <laughs> like, <on my> computer. <laughs> um, so that was really wild. Uh, yeah. I'm glad it's worked out. I hope you do get to go back to a normal schedule at uh, some point. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> um, and I feel like you've sort of answered this question when we were talking about, like, finding hobbies outside of our work. Um, but you mentioned in your bio that you like juggling multiple jobs at once, which I think mm. is a fairly rare thing to be able to say. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, yes. I'm curious why you like that and how you manage to keep multiple balls in the air at the same time. Basically, I... Like I mentioned before, kind of, I get bored by doing the same thing right. like over and over again. And so I, it's very fun to do things that flex a different part of my brain. And yeah, it also, I tend to procrastinate, um, <laughs> which is very unique to me specifically. <laughs> so if I have a lot of things going on, I sometimes I'll be like, oh, I can procrastinate on this by doing a different job. Yeah. Um, and then That's I make a classic so much- trap. Yeah, and then when I do the other job, uh, and it comes to a point where I'm like, oh, I need to finish this, I'll procrastinate on that by going back to this. And then I'm <laughs> actually staying pretty productive, but mm-hmm. mentally, my brain has no idea. You know, like, I know, <laughs> my brain doesn't know. So, yeah, I, it's kind of like that. But I, I also just like thinking of a lot of different things at once. And um, it's really fun to have, you know that thing about where... Um, it was, I think, I first heard it from, like, John Cleese, but now I'm going to attribute it to Jenny O'Dell, where you sort of, like, let a thought <laughs> just sort of die in your brain for a little bit, and mm-hmm. the next time you think about it, like, there's new stuff that has occurred yeah. within your brain. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Um, so I try and have a bunch of things going. Thank you so much for coming on. It has been such a delight and so eye-opening to talk to you. Yay! Oh my gosh, it was so nice to talk to you! <laughs> Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Karen, that was fascinating. Karen Chi has amazing energy and she (laughs) sounds like someone who'd be a lot of fun to hang out with, which, oddly enough, isn't something I always think about comedy writers, even though I love to laugh like they seem kind (laughs) of heavy people. Um, But on a, a very basic level, I feel like I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of writing jokes for a late night TV show, which is funny because 
I feel like there are at least five new movies or TV shows every year that are set in that particular workplace. I guess the thing is that they're fiction and where she works is real. <laughs> but the idea of a whole bunch of people each writing like 80 jokes a day every yeah. weekday for however many weeks of the year, that's mind-blowing. But also, I guess, a really good way to build up writing muscles have you ever been in a position where you just have to produce at a pace that feels slightly bonkers, but when you got to the other side, you felt like you benefited from that level of expectation? I would say that I haven't, but I don't know if that's because I've been conditioned to think that even the amount of work that I was doing when I was writing a lot as a journalist was not that much. Like, <laughs> arguably, most media jobs right now actually do demand that writers produce at a pretty high level. Like, I remember yeah. a, a, at a couple of jobs, the expectation was I would do like one thousand word feature a day, which I did. But like looking back from it, I don't know if I necessarily benefited from that. Like working on my book now, I don't feel like, oh, like this is it's suddenly easy to write a thousand words because like topics differ, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's like arguably the good thing is you get more bylines to prove that you've published more work. But at the same time, I feel like having to work at such a high volume can sometimes mean that you aren't thinking about what you're doing as much. Like you're, we will inevitably get assigned things that you only care about like halfway, or it's like, I, yeah. it's just because I've watched this or I'm familiar with this world that I've been assigned this topic. And Sometimes it can get kind of annoying. Like I remember at a couple of workplaces, like we often had other more famous writers named as examples that we should be following, like in their journalistic footsteps. But I remember after every one of those meetings, us sort of more junior writers would go back and be like, do our editors understand that those people can publish this really good polished writing because the load that they have to bear isn't you have to fill our site with more articles like I know a lot of the people that I really admire like sometimes their workload is like one piece of mind yeah. like one profile where you get to go meet the person go actually spend time with them and learn about them do research actually spend time making the writing good but if you're doing this every day then there's no way that anything is going to live up to that level and we think of it as a luxury, I think, like because mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that's so fancy. They get to yeah. travel. They get to spend a lot of time on a piece. But I don't think we should think about it that way. I have gone very far, of course, but you get what <laughs> I mean. Yeah, no, totally. And I think because it does tend to be a step up the career ladder, mm -hmm. it feels like, you know, yeah, something to move toward. But maybe that should just be the norm. And I know that there are a few writers who thrive on that I must produce, I must produce. I remember the iconic newspaper columnist, Liz Smith, who was writing, I think, every day well into her 80s. Mm -hmm. a, a colleague at the time got to have lunch with her and she told him that he should fight to be allowed to write every day. Like <sighs> That was something that would be really great for him. And, and she wasn't trying to like give him more work. She really yeah. thought that was what everybody enjoyed and what everybody wanted. Yeah, um, it's just not everyone will thrive in that yeah, kind of environment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think that's Most it. And people I think, won't, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not sustainable, but if you are one of those few people, then good more luck. More power to you. to you, really. Yes, exactly. All right, let's get back to Karen. So... Another part of her breakdown of the late night writing process that really stuck with me was the idea of, so they write the jokes, they give them to Seth, and then he reads them. 
super quickly in a monotone <laughs> just to see what's intrinsically funny and isn't relying on it. Like, that's crazy. But it makes total sense. You you shouldn't yeah. rely on, like, selling a joke and putting it over with intonation and their, their kind of great comedic timing. Mm -hmm. I've never been a late night watcher. It wasn't something I grew up with and I, I didn't really add it when I moved here. But when I think of the very few late night bits that are engraved in my mind, they are really reliant on delivery. And, you know, maybe that's because the, the host really had to fight to put it over. And that brought out like a sympathetic response in me. Uh, so anyway, are you, I'm curious, are you <laughs> a, a watcher of late night shows? Like Karen Chi, I mostly watch late night shows through clips on YouTube. So <laughs> not really, I would say. Um, I would also say that I'm kind of a hard audience member where I, I won't laugh at something if I think it's not funny. Like my, my current boyfriend who I've been with for three years um, likes to tell me that for the first three or four months of our dating, he didn't think that I liked him very much because I wouldn't laugh at all those jokes. <laughs> Oh my god! And, I, and also, like in college, one of my friends was in. I was in an acapella group, and so was one of my best friends. She was in a different one, and after a while, she was like, "Can you stop sitting in the front row of our concerts? Because your expression gives away that you don't like what's going on." Oh my on. god! Wow. <laughs> I mean, is that a poker face or is it the opposite of a poker face? Arguably, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, Karen's story about the clashing frames of reference in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. That is to say, people older than her, which was everyone not knowing like what Neopets are. It's like, that's one of the great testimonials to why workplace diversity of all mm -hmm. kinds matters. Like, yeah, yeah, the oldsters who watch Late Night live on an actual TV set, they might not know what a Neopet is, but long-running TV shows like that really need to expand their audience. And you can't do that if you're doing jokes for people from my generation, you know, about like Edward G. Robinson and swing dancing every night. <laughs> swing dancing is coming back, though. Oh, God. <laughs> I like you're like, no, keep it. No. Keep it back in the past. Keep it. Yes. I totally agree, though. And it's really true of all fields. And you can kind of feel it in the way that like coverage in general has kind of progressed. Like mm. even Parasite's best picture when kind of illustrated that point where in like in the press tour, Bong Joon-ho in a different award speech, he was like, if you guys just overcome subtitles then like so much more cinema will open up to you, which is true yeah. where we tend to overlook so much stuff just because it's considered foreign or otherwise not in our bracket for one reason or another. And there's also just a pervasive tendency to dismiss media that's meant for younger audiences or for yeah. women just because yeah. it doesn't necessarily jive with what our idea of quote-unquote great art is. Like, because it's not Citizen Kane doesn't mean that it can't be great art. Luckily, though, I feel like it is sort of turning around. Like, people are starting to argue kind of more on a broader level for the legitimacy of categories that weren't considered quote unquote like great before like even just the more um more pervasive coverage of video games and media i mm -hmm. think is something yeah. like that where it's like yeah. we've ignored this field for such a long time but there's no good reason why we did that no yeah i was also really struck by the picture that i had in my head of karen writing jokes for late night while living in Seoul, South Korea. And maybe it's just all of those TV shows and movies that I've watched, but the whole late night world feels very specifically linked with either Midtown Manhattan or Burbank and a few miles around there. And Karen's experience proves that, you know, sure, all that romantic stuff about everyone being in a room, throwing out jokes and a few <laughs> zip codes is the way to do it. Maybe it isn't. And 
for me, that was one of the most effective dismantlings of the whole office culture thing that I've come across. Yeah, and I think it's just become more and more true, especially now because we've been forced to figure out how to do things remotely and while we're yeah. separate from each other and while we can't be all in the same room, you don't actually have to be in the same space in order to work. Like, even like my first foray into like TV development was just through Zoom while I was still in New York and everyone oh. else was Zooming from LA because we could do that now. So I feel like it's a good progressive thing overall that we are learning to work differently, even if I wish the reason why that happened were different. (laughs) You were Zooming from Brooklyn with people in LA, but Mm -hmm. if people can be in cheaper parts of the country, that will open things up to so many more people. It's so expensive to live in New York. and Yeah, it's an accessibility thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tell the truth, though. Do you miss the office? <laughs> well, I only went to the Slate offices once, and that oh, was to God. like drop off my ID. I believe oh, <laughs> I never got to go because I started working at Slate during the pandemic, oh, and then wow. I quit my position as a staff writer also during the pandemic. So I just never went in. Wow. That's it. I do miss office culture a little bit, although I yeah. wish it were when it comes back, it remains optional again for yeah. the same reasons that we're talking about where it's like people in other parts of the country or other parts of the world can work with us. And yeah. also sometimes you just want to stay home. And also the commute time can be so long. Yes, There's yes. so many reasons why I think it should be optional, but I do miss seeing people, I guess, yeah, and yeah. having a better avenue with which to get to know my coworkers. Yeah. Like, in a Slack environment, I really only talk to my editor and mm-hmm. a couple of people who are in the culture vertical, but yeah. I didn't really get to know anybody else, which I feel like I would have at least a little bit more if we had been in an office setting. Yeah. I also miss when the food verticals would get a lot of junk food that they didn't want and leave it out and we could all come eat it. I really miss that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody left Slate recently who was famous for as soon as there was some note in Slack about there's food in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like, he would run. That would have been and, me. Yeah, and, you know, that's a great thing to be known for. <laughs> and who I, I would never have known that about you if you hadn't just told me. So, yeah, miss that. It's true. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like How To Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to our guest, Karen Chi, and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with Alicia Harris and Whitney White, the writer and director, respectively, of the play On Sugarland. Until then, get back to work! <laughs>